Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes? and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. This is a part of Dallas that did not exist when I was, well, I didn't grow up here, but my dad lived here. I came here all the time, and this is beautiful, right? And to see all you guys out here to um, listen to Beto speak is something else. Now I watched that first debate and there's something that Beto said that made us want to go out and learn this next song. It's a song, <laughs> it's a song by The Clash. It says, no man born with a living soul can be working for the clampdown. And a cue to Air Force. Give us a cannon. Welcome to the Opus. Season 6, Episode 3, final episode of our season of the masterpiece London Calling by The Clash. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy Recordings, I am your host, Andy Bothwell. What you heard at the top of the show was Britt Daniel of Spoon. Speaking during a performance they gave in Dallas, Texas at a benefit concert for former member of the U.S. House of Representatives, Beto O'Rourke. For those that don't know, Representative O'Rourke was, in 2018, running against incumbent Senator Ted Cruz for one of Texas's Senate seats in Washington, D.C. While he narrowly lost to Senator Cruz, he made quite a splash, even in defeat. One of the moments that really stood out in a Senate race that earned a lot of national attention happened on September 21st, 2018, in Dallas, Texas. You know, Beto, Beto had been in a, in a debate with Ted Cruz. This is Britt Daniel Spoon explaining the story to me over the phone last month in 2019. <laughs> and just sort of as an aside, he said, <laughs> you know, Ted Cruz is working for the clampdown <laughs> in, the, in the midst of a long answer to one of these debate questions. I just thought it was so great. Yeah, I'm not sure that I wasn't sure that a lot of people caught it, you know, but we were playing this benefit for him in Dallas maybe the next week. And I said, well, we got to play that. When I told him we were playing it, he was pretty excited. I told him right before his speech, right before we played. And yeah, it was it was a moment for sure.
how absurd is that? I mean, 40 years after four British punks were clamped down in a practice space behind a garage in jolly old London, England, that song's getting quoted as a punchline on national TV by a plucky young liberal congressman in El Paso, Texas. Even better to think about, if you remember my talk with Joey Lee from last week's episode, he was explaining how, back in the 70s, the Clash wanted to go play shows in Texas. But they didn't want to play the big cities. They wanted to play the tiny little Texas towns they knew from Marty Robbins songs. One of which, of course, is El Paso. So, can you imagine Joe Strummer walking around El Paso back in 1978, his bandmates by his side, taking in the sights of West Texas, all wearing crisp new cowboy hats. Joey Lee is their tour guide. And somewhere down the street in the same city is a six-year-old Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> Probably doing six-year-old stuff. Poking at bugs with a stick. Both parties totally unaware of the role they would play in American politics in 2018. And that their weird little cultural intersection would inspire another huge rock band, Spoon, to cover Clampdown and perform at a rally in Dallas, Texas for Beto O'Rourke. But that is the amazing thing about The Clash and London Calling. Despite being made by four British guys back in the late 70s, it's still ringing true today. All over the world. Even El Paso, Texas. The thing that makes something good art or good work is its ability to really be multiple and adaptable and to change and to kind of reflect and refract the times that it's in. This is Antonio D'Ambrosio, a filmmaker, writer, artist from New York City. He spent a lot of time with Joe Strummer late in his life. He went on to write a fantastic book called Let Fury of the Hour, Joe Strummer, Punk, and the Movement that Shook the World. Done tons of other writing about The Clash He's a fascinating guy, passionate activist, a huge fan. And when I got him on the phone to talk London Calling, he had just returned from England a few days after the latest parliamentary election. And it was on his mind. When The Clash put that record together, it was the run up to Thatcher becoming prime minister. And, you know, it was their, it was their statement about what was happening, what was going to happen, what could happen. And 40 years later, exactly essentially, is what's happening here with Boris Johnson in the UK. It's, 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 you know, Andy, it's remarkable, and it's this album is even more important today. Well, they were given the great All opinions of Brexit aside, the through lines between the United Kingdom in the 1970s and the Brexit era of Britain we're in right now are easy to draw. And when the Clash looked out their window, they saw a country struggling. 40% unemployment. It's a great division between classes and cultures. There's financial uncertainty and a rise of far-right political parties. Sound familiar? Even musicians were divided. 
Paul Weller of the Jam came out publicly in support of Thatcher and the Conservatives, an action that Strummer decried in the Clash song White Man and Hammersmith Palais. And Eric Clapton very famously went on a drunken rant on stage declaring England to be, quote, overcrowded, and threatened that if people didn't vote conservative, the country was in danger of becoming, and I'm quoting here, a black colony, end quote. He'd go even further, but just look it up. Again, sound familiar? One of the things that makes political music powerful is its sense of urgency and immediacy. And it doesn't matter if it's punk or rap or folk. Most times, the message is moving because it's delivered by someone who is living in or at least adjacent to a specific struggle. But that close proximity that can ignite one audience of like-minded people can be the very thing that keeps the message from becoming universal. And what rallies the revolution in Chile might not move the miners in Mansfield, and vice versa. You know, the Clash had no shortage of topics to focus on in their own backyard. And that was a great deal of their focus in the songwriting in the first two albums. But on London Calling, that all shifted. London Calling is like the musical equivalent of Picasso's Guernica, you know, because when you see Guernica, if you stand close to it, you see it in a different way. If you stand 10 feet away from it, you see it in a different way. If you stand to the left or right of it, you see it in a different way. You're always getting something new from it. And this record is like that. I mean, the, the, the thing about this record, the thing about what The Clash did so well and why they kind of rise above not just, you know, punk bands, new wave bands, you know, they're in that kind of pantheon of the greatest artists at least of the 20th century, because they had this ability to live in the present with this simultaneous feeling, intention, thoughtfulness of the history and the future together. They aren't just singing about their own struggle, or the struggle of their friends and their neighbors, because they understood that these things don't exist in a vacuum. The fight for human rights didn't end at the cliffs of Dover, so their message wasn't going to be held back by some invisible border made up by kings and politicians. They knew the revolution wasn't unique to the history of the world, but part of a continuous fight that started a long time before they were born and would continue long after they're gone. I mean, you can hear that in the songwriting. Spanish Bombs is a history lesson. It's about the Basque separatists bombing tourist hotels on the Costa Brava in Spain. But... It reminded Strummer of the provisional IRA's paramilitary campaigns for Irish independence in the United Kingdom. Rudy Can't Fail is about the rude boys of Jamaica in the 1960s, how they pushed back against the status quo laid down by their elders. Now, who could that possibly remind Joe Strummer and Mick Jones of? The punks. On Lost in the Supermarket, Joe Strummer wrote about a very specific supermarket near where he grew up. And the feeling of malaise it left him with, standing in those aisles, let down by the promises of capitalism and consumerism. You know, it is safe to say that most of us have never been to that supermarket, but Lord knows we've all been there. You see, it's the same curiosity that drew them to the sounds of different cultures from around the world. You know, those sounds we talked about in episode two, the sounds that define London Calling as a revolutionary piece of music— it's that same curiosity and passion 
that drew them to learn about, understand, and empathize with the struggles of different cultures from around the world, from the past, the present, and even the future. London Calling, the title track itself, is a great example of that. We're still with Antonio D'Ambrosio here. That song's an anti-war song. It's, you know, obviously anti-nuclear war. But, you know, that song is one of the first strong statements against climate change. And about, you know, that the planet essentially will be flooded, that we'll just live underwater. Look, he's not saying the clash could predict the future, but that is some damn foresight. You know, people often think of the song Guns of Brixton is about the race riots in the Brixton neighborhood of London. But those happened in 1981. That song was recorded two years before the Brixton uprising. And there it is. But it's not magic. It's knowledge. It's empathy. It's understanding. It's being able to read the room. You know, in basketball, they call it court vision. You're seeing how things are going to unfold before they unfold. Because if you pay attention, if you open your mind, if you study history, if you travel, if you step out of your comfort zone, if you stay curious about the world beyond your back door like The Clash did, you can start to see the future. Like a chess player calling mate 10 moves in advance. You know, it's so fascinating because when you're living with that real, like you're really present in the moment, you can see backwards and forwards. And, and so, you know, not to put like, this fairy tale like quality on the work here. But, you know, it's bands like The Clash, even Basquiat or Duke Ellington. I mean, you know, they're the ones that are seeing around the corner. They're ahead of the curve. They're the ones that are connected to, to the issues that really matter to being alive. I'm no less than a supermarket. I no longer shop I know I've said this a lot, but this is one of the things that makes this record so special. This is how Clampdown can reach a young Beto O'Rourke in El Paso, Texas, dig so deep into his political beliefs that the lyrics come out of his mouth in a debate with Ted Cruz. But making this record that is as politically and socially diverse as it is musically diverse, The Clash were sending a message to people all over the world that they were with them. And like we covered briefly in the first episode, that message tends to unfold in waves for people. The first wave of your understanding of London Calling, for me, when I was in high school, was this is rebel music, right? You recognize this voice as Joseph Patel, the filmmaker we spoke to in the first and second episodes. I know they're rebelling against something, and they're rebelling against the status quo of something. And, and that was enough for me at the time to be like, yeah, fuck yeah, the clash, right? And when that second wave happens, you start to understand oh, they're, they're rebelling against the status quo and uh, representing for marginalized communities that they stand in solidarity with. As an Indian kid in college in California, you know, solidarity was a big theme in the early 90s. 
as multiculturalism started to take over college campuses, brown people standing in solidarity with black folks, standing in solidarity with gay folks, standing in solidarity with any marginalized people, that was a big theme that resonated with me. And I didn't understand the clash to be that when I first heard them in high school. I understood them to be that when I listened, when I heard them again in college. As you grow, the meaning of the music grows grows with it. Do you know how hard that is to do? To make an album that evolves with you over the course of your life, let alone evolves with the world over the span of history. You know, most albums don't age well. I mean, there's a ton of music that meant everything to me when I was 15. That all feels pretty embarrassing now. You know, the best that most albums can hope for over the course of history is to elicit some nostalgia in the listener. Some sense memory that takes them back to the place they were when they first heard that band. But it is a select few albums from only a handful of great artists that are really capable of making something that evolves and reveals new truths decades and decades after the final master is turned in. For me, that's The Clash. I never considered them my favorite band until just a few years ago. And I had this realization that this is the band I've been listening to longer than any other. And even after all these years, they're still teaching me new things. Still teaching me how to rebel. Elevator going up In the gleaming corridor of the 51st floor But money can be made if you really want some more Executive decision, a clinical precision Jumping from the windows filled with indecision I get good advice from the advertising world Make no mistake, this album is not some scolding political manifesto. At no point in time on London Calling does it feel like The Clash is wagging their finger at the listener. What separates London Calling from other political albums and even earlier Clash albums was this understanding they had developed about how to package their very serious and studied message into beautifully written pop songs. Well, I mean, I I think it is this... this weird mix of put in in Billy Bragg terms of of pop and politics. This is Lauren Denizio, the lead singer of the fantastic punk band Warriors. Really all I mean all the songs on Lemon Calling are compelling, catchy, hummable <laughs> and it feels like a party, you know, a, a punk rock party, but a party. And then it's about fighting fascism and combating the isolation of urban life. I think that there's really something to be said for the reason that it resonated the way that it did at that at that point in time. And that I think that those are the same sorts of things that are going to end up resonating now. That trying to always hit people over the head with it is not always going to get them to listen when they're just trying to forget about it. I love what Lauren is saying there. That sometimes even the most fervent activist needs a break from fighting fascism to have a punk rock party. (laughs) You know, a more cynical person could look at this approach and say that this is just a move by the band to sell more records. And trust me, there are plenty of punk fans out there who swear that London Calling is the Clash selling out, that the only good Clash record is the first record. 
I'm going to try not to abandon my editorial standards here, uh, but... Um, Those people are morons! Correct me if I'm wrong, they were, they were accused with London Calling of uh, abandoning their punk roots, right? This is Sean Bonnet from the folk punk band AJJ. I had a great talk with him and his bandmate Ben Galladay, who you also hear on this quote, uh, about what they learned from London Calling. You're not punk unless you're accused of that, in my opinion. And that, <laughs> that completely informed my, my ideas of rebellion, particularly like rebelling against, uh, against punks that, uh, that want you to stay the same. Yeah, uh, look away, any, sound away. Yeah, anytime, anytime like I look on Twitter and hear something about how our band uh, abandoned our punk spirit or like changed their, ch- sold out their sound... Anytime someone accuses us of, of that, I uh, I kind of rejoice because I know we're on the true path, and I know that's what the Clash also did. It's kind of reassuring. It's very reassuring. superficial understanding of this record would make all this pop sensibility and sharp songwriting seem like a diluting of the greater message. You know, the inclusion of non-political songs like Brand New Cadillac or Lover's Rock or Train in Vain could feel like softball palate cleansers between the heavy political anthems like London Calling and Spanish Bombs. But I think that would be missing the point. Because personally, I don't think there are softball songs on here. I think all these songs are political songs. And this gets back to that Albert Camus quote that I keep bringing up. But to The Clash, in the face of all that's out there trying to break you, existence itself is an act of defiance. Refusing to let the things that are fucked and the system that's fucked make your life miserable is the, the most fundamental revolutionary act you can engage in. This is Robert Evans. He's a journalist who's covered protest movements, rebellions, and revolutions all over the world. He's also the host of several great podcasts, including Behind the Bastards and It Could Happen Here. If you're not willing to fight for your own personal happiness, what are you willing to fight for? That's important for a lot of reasons. I've been covering protests and street actions and stuff long enough that I've seen a lot of good activists burn out because of a lack of that balance. This idea that living well and forcing yourself to find some space to enjoy life is is like counter-revolutionary. I do think that when people don't make that sort of space to enjoy their existence, then it kind of shortens the amount of time they're going to actually be able to fight for those things. And I think that's a big part of what London Calling is is saying and what I think uh, The Clash is saying across their uh, oeuvre. This isn't just something that Robert believes is important to personal survival. And it isn't some absurd romantic notion that music can win a war. It's something that he's seen in action. From Standing Rock to Occupy to the Ukrainian Euromaidan revolution in 2014. And he considers to be fundamental to the success of that kind of political occupation of public space as protest. 
Because that was a big thing that was pointed out to me about the Maidan is like the importance of this stage where they would have political speeches, but also people would play music and stuff because you've got thousands of people there fighting and risking their lives on a daily basis. Like if there's not some sort of interlude, if there's not something like joyous about it, if there's not this sense of community, if people don't feel connected to each other in a way that's, you know, more emotional than standing arm in arm with a truncheon, they won't hold. And I, I think that was a really significant thing for me. And it was a significant thing for me too. Learning that lesson about finding that balance so that you can keep going, no matter what. Living a life that's full of joy is itself a revolutionary act. And that is something that I learned in part from The Clash. In World War II, British soldiers scattered across the globe would tune their transistor radios into the BBC World Service. And they would be given hope when they heard the nightly greeting... This is London calling. Because it wasn't just an introduction. It was a reminder that despite being under an endless siege and brutal bombardment by the Nazis, if London was calling, then London was still standing. And there was still something back home worth fighting for. So it was no accident that they chose to name this album after that. Because for as critical and as angry as this album can be at times. It is, at its core, an album about hope. Broadcasting out across the globe and across generations, reminding people that no matter what struggle you're locked in, there's always something worth fighting for. I would have normally ended the episode right here, but, uh, God, you want to work on these podcasts, you, know, you get so much audio. There's so many great stories that a lot of times really great stuff, sometimes whole guests just get left on the cutting room floor. Uh, normally it is what it is. These things can't go up forever. Sometimes a great story may not have a place in the narrative. So I let it go. But uh, this story, I kind of feel like I have to put it in here. Because in all my research, I hadn't heard this one anywhere. Everybody knows that The Clash used to uh, rehearse upstairs from us in, in W10 in London, in West London. Everybody knows this and that, um, you know, we're the third wave of punk. They were the first wave of punk. Let's be honest about it, you know. This is Jazz Coleman, the lead singer of the legendary post-punk band Killing Joke, talking about his history with Joe Strummer. In relation to The Clash, we, we didn't feel like brotherhood with these people. It didn't really help when youth used to creep into them. They had a big Clash poster. Youth is the name of the bass guitarist from Killing Joke. And it's a clash. And the youth drew a, two lines, like a dollar sign through the S of the clash. And they were really upset by this. So they were kind of scowling at us 
for, for, for years after that. And then one day I was in the Paula Bella Gold pub and Stromer was opposite me and he goes, hey, Jazz, you want a drink like this to me? We never actually spoke. And I went, all right, yeah, fine. And then we went on a three-day bender, right? And we had, he told me that everything that's happened to him, he's from such a different background to us, you know, and uh, how he'd been ripped off and he still had a massive mortgage and they had a number one in America and they never got any money for it. And I learned all these things and, and we became the closest of friends and what a wonderful guy, Joe. And Joey can hear me now. Uh, what a wonderful guy. So I had this tradition with Joe that every time we bump into each other because we lived in the same area, we have this tradition that whatever we're doing, we stop what we're doing and go on another three-day bender. <laughs> so every time I've seen Joe, and up until he died, we just used to go off and get fucking hammered for three days and catch up. And what a wonderful guy. Uh, 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 and all I can tell you about the clash is the effect it had on so many people around me, um, uh, this band, um, and the energy. And I used to say to Joe in my last conversations with him, why don't you get your fucking band back together? You know, like this. He goes, Jazz. He says, we're not like you. You're like a family band. <laughs> He's like, we're not like your band. He said, we can't do it. We can't, can't do it. And it was gone. And then he was heartbroken that he couldn't put, be together with his band. I think they all were, you know, for one reason or another. It's not my, my, my thing. There was always a pretty contentious relationship between the members of the Clash, and in the end, it didn't end well. Which is something Joe Strummer is pretty responsible for and regretted till his dying day. Hearing Jazz Coleman tell that story honestly kind of broke my heart because you can't help but wonder what could have been if things were different. But... At the same time, I am very grateful that they held on as long as they did. Because without it, we may not have gotten London Calling. And I don't know where I'd be without that record. That's all for this season of The Opus and for 2019. We'll be back next year with more great stories and more great albums from the Sony Vaults. I want to thank our guests, Jazz Coleman of Killing Joke, Britt Daniel Spoon, Sean Bennett and Ben Gowdy of AJJ, and Lauren Denizio of Warriors. If you're looking for new music, you can do a lot worse than looking up those four acts. Of course, I want to thank Antonio D'Ambrosio, uh, Robert Evans, and Joseph Patel. Really talented guys, all doing exciting stuff in all their own ways. Time is uh, running out for your chance to win that Lennon Calling prize pack over at consequencesound.net. So don't wait too long. It's pretty cool. Get on over there, consequencesound.net. Search The Clash. Put your name in the hat. Best of luck to you. This whole season has really been focused on Lennon Calling, but on a personal note, don't sleep on Combat Rock. Everybody's heard Rock the Casbah and Should I Stay or Should I Go, but don't let that shape what you know about that album. That last half, in my opinion, whew, Straight to Hell, God, Sean Flynn, William Burroughs reading poetry on there, that, that, in my opinion, 
is just as good as London Calling. If you have a problem with that, you can find me on social media. I know my stage name, Astronautilus. That's uh, A-S-T-R-O-N-A-U-T-A-L-I-S. I will talk the clash any time of day. Hit me up. Of course, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to this dang thing. The numbers are going up, which is nice. Word's getting out. Keep telling your people about this podcast so I keep making it forever. This season's been a real joy for me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm looking forward to next year. We've got a bunch of great stuff coming. For Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast.